if you don't notice, we're, we're, in, we're not in Colossians this morning. Uh, Doug has the opportunity, since I'm preaching, to, to preach elsewhere. Um, but you can think of this as like a sister sermon to what we've been going over in our series in Colossians. We're going to be focused a lot on unity. We're going to be focused a lot on the nature of the church. Um, so you can, you can use all the things that Doug has been talking about in Colossians. Uh, keep them fresh in your mind as we go this morning. Before we get started, I'm going to pray. God, we praise you because you're worthy of it. We praise you because you've given us Christ, without whom we have nothing. We can come before you humbly, we can come before you obediently, we can come before you sacrificially because you were the one that first gave Christ for us. We praise you that we can know you, we can know Christ, we can know the power of his resurrection, we can share his sufferings. Help us to see how the gospel applies to our lives, even this morning. So I pray that you'd use your word, you'd use my words, you'd use our hearts and our thinking to shape us more into the image of Christ. I pray that we would be transformed, we would be challenged, and we would leave encouraged to continue worshiping you into the week. Amen. When I was young, I wanted to be just like my older brother, Oliver. I wanted to play the same sports that he did, I wanted to play the same video games. I read the same books. I generally wanted to do the same things as him so that I would end up like him. Looking back, it's possible that, you know, either I wanted someone to hang out with or, you know, because I was lonely or really competitive, I wanted to be better than him. But for the sake of illustration, we'll assume that that I wanted to be like him because I respected him. So at, at some point in my childhood, as I was maturing, I, I must have had some recognition that I shouldn't try to be like Oliver because his goals in life don't align with my goals in life. We're fundamentally different. I can trace back to middle school when, when they started to diverge. Um, he started to play a lot of basketball, and I would do swim team. He quit playing the piano. I kept playing the piano. He started pursuing civil engineering, and I joined the robotics club, eventually doing mechanical engineering. I stopped using Oliver as an example for how to live because I foresaw that we had different destinations in life. We had a different goal in life. And I was right, you know? He has a nice paying job, and I work in full-time ministry. (laughs) Here's, Here's what I'm trying to get at. What we try to imitate in life is directly influenced by our future destination. What we try to imitate in life is directly influenced by our future destination. If you want to be a really good three-point shooter, you imitate Stephen Curry, not Charles Barkley. I had to Google a little bit of NBA knowledge for that one. As, As people, we naturally try to imitate others, though. Children imitate their parents. Gen Z kids, you know, imitate their favorite TikTokers or or whatever. Quick note, if you want to be like your favorite TikTok celebrities, you're going to have to like learn some skills. Uh, sorry, you're going to either have to be rich or good looking because you, you'll have no other marketable skills. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. In our passage this morning, uh, which Bonnie read for us, we're going to be looking at Philippians 3, 17 to 21. You can turn there. You're going to be helped if you have your Bible open in front of you. I'm sure there's Bibles sitting around in the pews or you can share with your friends. 
In our passage, Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to imitate the example of people who pursue future glory rather than earthly fulfillment. So if you get anything out of the sermon this morning, it's to follow the example. And Paul gives two reasons for following that example. First, God's enemies will face destruction and God's people will be glorified. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 and then we'll dive in. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Before we get too far, I first want to point out how important the theme of unity is to Paul. Rather than saying, brothers, imitate me, he actually says, brothers, join in imitating me. It's a a corporate assignment. It's our church's job, the whole church's job, to find its unity in imitating the, Paul that ex- the example that Paul and others set for them. You might ask, what's, well, what's the difference? Well, what is it that should unify a church? You know, is it, is it that we all live in Corvallis or Albany? Is it that we all love rock climbing or coffee or, you know, like theological book groups? I think our unity should, should be together pursuing the same things that Paul gives, gives his life to, gave his life to. Our unity should be in what we talk about. The people should recognize our following the example of Paul as what binds us together. The branch church should be characterized by a group of people whose confidence and hope is in Christ and who live lives in pursuit of obtaining the resurrection from the dead that Paul talks about in Philippians 3. So if we're, if we're to find unity in following Paul's example, we need to understand what it is that he gave his life to. What was the example that he said, what are we to imitate? Why is it worth following? So I know the sermon is verses 17 to 21. We'll get there, uh, but we're going to backtrack a little bit and look starting in verse 7. Fundamentally, Paul's confidence is in Christ alone. In fact, the first part of the chapter outlines everything that Paul could have been putting his hope in. It could have been his obedience to the law, his heritage, his prestige as a Jewish elite. But he's willing to throw all of that away for the sake of Christ. Let me read starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So why is it that Paul would be willing to throw away his whole life, to count it as loss? Well, in Christ, Paul found something better. He found something worth the cost. Jesus actually provides a very helpful illustration of this in Matthew 13. Uh, He says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds. Joyfully, he sells everything he has, and he buys that field. Paul's setting an example for us that knowing Jesus, unifying together in his death and resurrection, sharing his sufferings, those are the greatest things that a person could give their life away to. It's worth any cost. If you found a treasure of infinite worth, would you sell everything to get it? Personally, I know that relationships cost a lot. Uh, 
I know that, you know, dating, getting married, it costs money, it costs time. It actually costs, costs your life as well. And marriage is a really good picture of the Christian life because it, it mirrors the exclusivity of a relationship with Jesus. And if another human being is worth giving up part of your life for, how much more an infinitely joyful relationship with the God of the universe, the God of the universe who gave his son to die for you. That's the Christian message. What God offers us freely was described beautifully. Sean read it for us this morning in Deuteronomy 8. God offers a fruitful and plentiful land, his presence, fullness of blessing to his people who would humble themselves and worship him. It's not easy. It costs your life, your money, your time, your reputation, your attempts to make yourself right with God, your relationships. But it's worth it for an eternity of joy in the presence of God with a new resurrected body, completely without sorrow, without pain, without death, without sin. And that's the message of the gospel that we need every day. The purpose of Christianity is not you know, a religious system or good morals or you know, fun, fun community. It's, it's laying aside everything that we are and trusting in the life of Jesus alone. And the goal is to see the glory of God put on display for all of eternity. So this isn't something that you've thought about before. If this isn't something that you've given your life away for, don't leave without, without considering it. God offers so much good. And yeah, it costs, it costs your life, but instead you get Jesus' life instead. And Christians, you who have put your faith in Christ alone to make you right with God, you've turned from trying to do it all yourself. How are you growing your desire to know Jesus as Lord? That's the language that Paul uses. The surpass, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So how are you growing in your desire to know Jesus as Lord? And do people see in you a deep-seated desire to know Jesus that eclipses everything else that the world offers? I know personally, I need to reflect on this every day. I need to count the cost. I need to see that, you know, if it's actually worth giving up everything for, I need to live like it. I need to live like it makes a difference. And that's the display of Paul's confidence that we see in his pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. Let's move on to look at verse, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So it's Paul's confidence, it's his hope in Christ that compels him to live in a way that pleases God. The Christian life of pursuing things above, setting your minds on, on heavenly things rather than earthly things, that's what we call the process of sanctification. We're not there yet. The promised future resurrection is meant to spur us on toward holy living right now. Paul even gives a, a mild illustration of this in verse 13. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, the cost was thrown off. All of his achievements, all of his righteousness under the law, 
He casts it aside, and he turns toward this future hope in Christ. He turns towards the glorious resurrection that he has in Christ, and he runs. He presses on. He strains forward. He calls it a prize, the prize of knowing the one who made me, Paul, his, who started a good work in me, us, and who will bring it to completion. In the first section, Paul, I think, was countering legalism, which is righteousness according to the law. In this section, 12 through 16, I think he's countering a form of what we call antinomianism. That's that a person can reach perfection in this life or full maturity in Christ and therefore have no need to strive daily for holiness. So instead, what we, what we need to do is lay aside every effort to justify ourselves before God, and we need to run towards Jesus. It's not just we abandon the law and live our own way. It's that we need to put that thing aside and move towards Jesus, sanctification. And I think this is, this is a real problem in the church today. We look around at examples of Christians who either give up or they don't, they don't care about sanctification. They don't care about holiness. They assume it's okay for us. We assume that it's okay for us to do the same thing. We see examples of people just living normal lives in the world. And we think, why can't I do the same thing? I hate feeling that, that I even need to convince myself and all of you that it's our job to pursue righteousness. You know, we, we tell ourselves things like, the sin that I struggle with, you know, I'll struggle with it the rest of my life anyways. Or, my sin isn't that bad compared to what other Christian guys I know are struggling with. Or, I can wait till I'm older, more grounded, to give time to studying God's word by myself with others. Or, other Christians struggle in hospitality. They have a, a hard time being with people that aren't like me. So I, I can just fit in to that same model. Or, most Christians have a hard time sharing the gospel with their non-Christian friends too. Branch Church, why, why is our unity sometimes just in mediocre, passionless, religious activity that looks just like the rest of the world? The world, the world can show up at you know, a religious gathering once a week. The world can live comfortably surrounded by people that are similar. The world can do whatever it wants, but we have been radically transformed by the gospel. We've laid aside everything to follow Jesus. And so we counted a joy to suffer with Christ, to be humble, to say no to the patterns of sin. We give to the ministry of the church. We look to other people's interests rather than our own. We devote time to be with the Lord, to know his heart, to honor him, to thank him. We take steps of, of reconciliation in friendships that, that are hurt because that's what God did for us. We're bold with the advancement of the gospel, no matter what the cost, because people are dying who don't know Jesus. This is the sanctified life. It's not a mediocre religion. It's I'm laying aside everything that I can to pursue Jesus. We don't, we don't throw away, we don't put off our, our worldly clothing and then just stand by it and try it on every once in a while. We, we lay it aside, and then we run the opposite direction. We run toward the prize of knowing Jesus because he's going to complete the work that he started. I heard it since, said once that if the Bible says to do something, we naturally don't want to do it. If the Bible says not to do something, we naturally want to do it. Well, it tells us to follow the example of those who pursue sanctification because we don't want to do it. We would rather imitate the world. We would rather be just like 
the rest of the people around us. So we need to look at our, our original passage and, and see two reasons that Paul actually gives us to follow his example. First, we follow the example because God's enemies will be destroyed. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's pretty clear that this stuff is a, it's a big deal to Paul. He talks about it a lot. It makes him weep. It's debated on exactly who, is Paul, who Paul is talking about here. I think the reason that it brings him to tears, though, is that these are people that don't know that's, that's their destination. They're people who might think they're mature in Christ. They're people who might think they actually know what it is they're living for. But instead, they live completely opposite. He says their end is eternal destruction, eternal separation from God, a waste of a life. And what, what characterizes them? What do they look like? Well, they live to satisfy, to fulfill their flesh. The ESV uses the word belly. It lends itself to you know, ideas of gluttony. But it could very, very easily be a reference to sexual sin, a general attempt, attempt to make your satisfaction and fulfillment a God in itself. I think the toughest thing is, is what they boast in. What they glory in are the things that are actually meant to bring dishonor and humiliation. They're proud of their sin. They're proud of their selfishness and everything else that will eventually lead to their destruction. That's, that's pretty gloomy. Here's a, here's a couple quick points on, on why I'm saying these things. We don't, we don't celebrate because God will bring destruction to his enemies. In fact, we're no different apart from Christ, apart from his exhortations to be sanctified by the Spirit. We're no different than them. I think, I think the fact that God will bring judgment on those who don't walk according to holiness is meant to point us toward unity together in following Christ's example. It's to breed compassion for these people that he describes together. Paul's heart burns for people who face eternal destruction. He's devoted his life to bringing the good news of Jesus to them. He hasn't just sat by and said, oh, these guys, these worldly guys who don't believe in Jesus, they'll be destroyed. He actually, he burns with passion for them to know Jesus. In Romans 9, 2, he's talking about the Israelites, this very thing. He says that he has great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart. He wishes that he were cut off from Christ in place of the Jews. Romans 10, 1, he repeats the same idea. He says, his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So pray for compassion for yourself and pray for the salvation for people who don't know God. Use a passage like this as a warning for yourself to keep your eyes fixed on the prize of knowing Jesus. Apart from God's work, apart from his word, apart from his spirit, this is, this is us. Second reason that we follow the example is because God's people will be glorified. So he's giving like a, a bad case and a good case. Two, two reasons, negative, positive. Let's look at verse, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So we've already seen, seen this theme of, of future hope, of glory in this chapter. But Paul, Paul gives a really helpful description of what it is here. What is it that we're living for? In contrast to the enemies of God who live according to the world, the people of God don't belong to this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, certainly there's a reference to a unified people under a unified rule and a unified government. That's, that's what the word citizenship means. But it's also that our citizenship is the whole life and society that we were meant to inhabit as God's people. What is, what is our society, what is our unity supposed to represent in the kingdom of God? It's where the hope of the believer is laid up. Our citizenship is in the presence of God, where God dwells. And, and even though we await the return of Jesus on the day of Christ, even though we have yet to be transformed into resurrection bodies, the reality of our new citizenship is here. Not in our earthly society, but as a unified church. Our lives right now need to reflect that the world we live in is not permanent. Our lives need to reflect that even our, our bodies aren't permanent. They'll be made new into the image of Christ. Hopefully that should give some of you some uh, comfort as it does for me. But the, the reality of future glory starts as we live in pursuit of that future glory. It starts after God makes us his and we begin the process of sanctification. We live in anticipation of it. Rather than following the patterns of this world, we wait for a new one. This is the relationship between sanctification and glorification. There's, there's some big words for you. The fact that future glory is coming, glorification. The fact that Jesus is coming back. The fact that the power and authority of God will remake our bodies to be like the perfect image of Christ. That needs to compel us in our current lives, in our sanctification, in our pursuit of holiness. So we, we have to follow the example because of what's guaranteed for us in the end. Every time Jesus talks about the end of days in the Gospels, the last days, the, the end times, whatever, his, his application is to stay awake, keep watch, be sober-minded. He gives imagery of a master leaving town for a while, a bridegroom being delayed. But the point is, is a separation between those who are anticipating his return, they're celebrating together, and those who are complacent and don't live like it's a reality. The time we have on earth it's not a loss, you know, that God just writes off between our conversion and our death. The life we have now is an opportunity to display the work of God in us through sanctification as we hopefully anticipate those future realities. So, so do you live like you, you belong on this earth? Are you comfortable in your routines, your relationships? Do you, do you live like the world does? Or are we as a church striving together toward a unified, heavenly longing right now? It looks like God's people gathering together, worshiping together, what, what we're doing right now, encouraging one another, fighting sin together, helping each other see the joys of knowing Christ together, and constantly reminding each other that this world is not our home. This nation is not our home. Hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, uh, but, but the end goal is not to create a perfect Christian society here on earth. The goal is not to fix earthly governments. 
The goal is not, it's, it's not, not even the government or the school system's job to teach Christian doctrine. The goal is not to argue or divide over which, which political leader is best adhering to the law of God. The goal is not to despair when our secular country refuses to acknowledge or reform absolute truth. We can, we can pray for more justice to be done. We can pray for, for societal reform. But we can never get comfortable living here as American Christians. This world, this country, it's not our home. No, we have, we have a different home, a different king, a different society waiting for us in the presence of God. So we live now as God's people, serving and worshiping together, so that when Christ returns, we will continue our patterns of living into eternity. We won't die and then be surprised that we have a different king. So we follow the examples before us because God will bring destruction on his enemies and he will glorify his people. Future glorification, future resurrection, and and perfection in the presence of God, all of those good things should motivate holy living and sanctification right now. If we have confidence in what Christ has done for us to put off the old, old selves, if we've left behind everything and counted it as a loss, and we press on toward knowing the, the prize of knowing Jesus for all of eternity, that, that's the example that we're supposed to follow that Paul gives for us. So how do we actually do that? What does it look like? How do we apply some of this stuff? Well, I have a few, I have a few practical thoughts. The first is we have to know what examples we're supposed to follow. The Bible's filled with, you know, the language of humility, service of Christ, his patience, his love, his kindness, his compassion. Most forgottenly, even his, his suffering that he endured for those he loved. So we need to learn from Scripture, even as we've been doing this morning, that Jesus is worth following after and worth laying aside everything to follow. Spend time meditating on the character of Christ that we see in Scripture. The Bible's filled with it. We have books written about it. And that's, that's pretty general, you know. I don't know if I would pull that application directly from this passage. I think it's helpful. But more specifically, in our context, Paul calls us to follow his and others like him as they do this thing. Paul says, imitate me and the example that you have from us who are doing the same things. The example is to follow Jesus, strive for holy living. So, two things. How are you living as an example to those so that other people can follow you? And how are you pursuing godly examples in your life to follow after? I think verses like this need to compel our church constantly as we're thinking about cultivating a discipling culture. Contrary to what some of you might think, discipling others is not necessarily sitting down for coffee at 7 a.m. with a Bible open in front of you and just reading it. That's, that's part of it, but it's more than that. It's, it's inviting people into your life and modeling your life for other people so that they know what it looks like to follow Jesus. They know what it looks like to put your hope in God. So my, my encouragement to all of you and myself is, is to live like we give our lives away for the gospel 
and pursue holy living. And, and be real with people about how hard it is. I think there's nothing more discouraging than to look at another Christian, see how easy it looks, and then want to give up because our lives are a lot harder. Personally, I was taught perseverance and faithfulness in college by watching Nate and his family as they went through some really hard things in just a couple years. There wasn't a time where Nate sat me down and said, you know, this is how you persevere in the Christian life. This is what faithfulness looks like. This is how you continue to grow in ministry. This is how you continue to give your lives away for ministry to other people when it's really hard. He didn't, he didn't teach me any of that as we sat down for coffee. No, I, I got to see it firsthand. You know, I know it was hard for them because I saw it. I was, I was a part of their lives. And, you know, seeing how hard it was, it didn't stop me, it didn't stop him from giving me an example of how I'm supposed to live, how I should lead my family, how I should continue to pursue Christ above all. Those things were maybe even taught better in the midst of, of difficult circumstances. Remember what I was saying earlier, what we try to imitate in life is directly influenced by our future destination. I saw that the things Nate and his family were living for what they were living for, I should want to live for. It looks really appealing. So imitate those people who are living for eternity. My encouragement for all of us, you know, us who are young, maybe we're working, maybe we're, we're students, find people in this church to lead us in that example. Be bold. Invite yourself into a church member's life and just start to watch how they live. You know, invite yourself over for a, for a meal or, or coffee or something. I can tell you they'll be, they'll be helped by it as much as you are. And for older people in this, in this congregation, I don't know, older is pretty, pretty subjective here, but open your lives up to other people as well. Be, be invitational. Be vulnerable with young people about the difficulty of life. Show them how important it is to rely on God and his promises every day. In some ways, I think, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but I think that you'll, you'll open yourselves up to seeing the passion and different perspectives that, that younger people offer. And at the very least, you'll have a reason to model for them what it looks like to follow Jesus at every stage in life. This is how we create a culture of unity in the advancement of the gospel and success in the Christian life. It's through, it's through discipling. So don't just hang around people you know. Don't just hang around people that are like you. Let's, let's take advantage of the, the intergenerational nature of our church, and let's learn from one another. Let's spur one another on toward holy living, and let's remind ourselves to live in anticipation of our coming King. Let me pray.